looking uh, one more time at this text from uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Uh, I've read it uh, in its entirety twice. I want to read just a portion of it this morning. Uh, But you recall at the beginning of the text, it's time to uh, cross the Jordan River. And uh, so there is the call, get everything ready. Um, We saw in that reference to three days, uh, to be uh, consecrated, to be prepared, not just with your bags packed, but to be prepared internally for the crossing of the river. And then we focused last week on verses 12 through 15, where Moses reminds the two and a half tribes who already have been given their land on the east bank, don't be content to just sit there. Remember, we're a whole group together. God in his grace gave you land on the east bank. Are you going to let your brothers in the other nine and a half tribes fight it out alone and say, we got ours, best of luck to you? Or are you going to be one people together? And cross over the river. And of course they went together. And I want to read just the last three verses of the text. Uh, And this is the two and a half tribes responding to Joshua's challenge to them. Reminding them of what they'd promised Moses. And it says, And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death, only be strong and courageous. So, why are you here this Sunday morning? Well, you say, that's a a silly question. What do you mean, why am I here? It's Sunday? Um, And being Sunday, I believe that one ought to be in church on a Sunday morning. That's a good start, good answer, but is that all? Is that the only reason you're here? Let me uh, put the question, frame it in a different way, and it's simply this. Why is our congregation here in Botno, North Dakota? I ask that because there's other churches in the community. They're just a handful of blocks away, so why are we here? Do we need to be? Is there anything unique about us? Are we simply a religious organization with no defined direction or purpose? Do we exist for the purpose of existing? Do we exist for the purpose of perpetuating the organization? Is that all there is? Do we have a valid reason for our existence here? Are there any noble, transcendent values, purposes, that motivate and govern and guide and undergird and inform everything that we do? And the answer is, yes, there are. And if you noticed, deliberately on the back of your worship folder today, I printed our purpose statement. So what about this purpose statement on the back page? Our purpose is what? First of all, you notice it is to glorify God. If you want to use the word worship for that, that would be an excellent synonym. Because worship isn't just in this room. But the Apostle Paul calls us to a life of worship in all things, to seek God's glory in all things. And so for a believer, 
glorifying God needs to be central. It needs to be overarching. It needs to be number one in all things. Seeking to honor God in the ordinary things of life, seeking to honor God as we spend time during the week in his word, in prayer, uh, and yes, making it a priority to be in his house on a Sunday morning. A lot of reasons to gather on a Sunday morning. I could preach a couple series of sermons on why it's important to be here. But part of it is, part of it is, so that our lives might be recentered and refocused, so that we might hear the same things together, so that we might sing the same things together, so that we might be united together. Uh, so that as we go into the week, we've all heard the same thing. We've all sung the same thing. We're on the same page, so to speak, as believers. Uh, that's part of the reason, uh, to give a public expression to our faith, that we might find ways to encourage others. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for gathering. And so, number one is we seek to glorify God during the week in various ways, and then as we gather on the Lord's Day. And then you notice glorifying God and then growing in faith. Out of a life centered on worship, we exist as a congregation so that we might grow in our understanding of the word. So that we might mature in our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, as he's revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. Uh, so that we might grow in a relational way with the Lord. And so if this is really so, if we really believe growing in faith, that's why we have Sunday school classes for all ages. Do you attend? That's why we have Bible studies. Do you attend? Uh, that's why I teach confirmation class, by the way. That's why I preach systematically through the scripture. You've known that over these years. It's not a passage here and one there and one over there. It's preaching systematically through the scriptures because I want you to get a sense of what does the scripture teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. What does the scripture teach so that we might grow in our faith, not just so that we know more about the Bible, that's important, but then out of that knowledge that we grow relationally, that we know the Lord in, in a personal and a living way, uh, greater than ever before. And so our purpose statement, this is what we say we're here for, to glorify God. We come together to grow in our faith, and then out of that, out of a life which seeks to glorify God, and out of growing in our relationship with the Lord and in our knowledge of the Word, then to go forth in evangelism and service. Then we have the motivation, we have the framework, uh, the context to step out in service and ministry for the Lord, to use our spiritual gifts in the context of the congregation, to use them in the context of the community. And so as we grow into the congregation that God has called us to be, uh, if we are going to be an outreaching, growing, uh, impactful church, there are five values that will mark each of us individually and then will mark us then collectively as a congregation. I've touched on in this passage the first three of them. Let me just quickly touch on them before moving to the final two. And the first one is this. If we are serious about moving ahead for God, we will be a church, and of course a church is made up of individuals that is concerned for personal holiness. And I talked about what George Barna speaks about is there is, in our day, there is a disconnect between what we profess and what we practice. And he calls it an ethics gap. 
And so if there is that ethics gap where we say on paper, this is what we believe, this is what we stand for, yeah, we sure do, but then we're over here, what does that say? Okay, we're not going to be impactful as a congregation if our profession and our life don't match. We talked about the importance of personal holiness. The next one we focused on was uh, a church that's moving ahead for God is serious about obedience, obeying the things in the word of God that we encounter as we read his word, as we study his word, what does he have to say to us, but then thinking as a congregation about this matter of the great commission, not the great suggestion, but the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Are we serious about that? And in what ways are we? Not just kind of in a vague collective way, but what way are you serious about that being so? And then last Sunday, we focused on this matter of unity. A value that marks the church that's moving ahead for God, it's a congregation that is marked by unity. And I talked about unity as being, uh, in essence, a coin with two sides. On the one side of the coin, a church can be disunified when there is bickering, uh, when there is gossip, uh, when there's a little group of malcontents. I mean, I mean, those kinds of things will create disunity very quickly in a church. But what we looked at uh, last week was when you flip the coin over, there's a passive way in which we create disunity, and it's by uninvolvement. You may not ever gossip, uh, you may not ever be part of a little group that's discontent with this, that, and the other thing, but you're just uninvolved. And when you're uninvolved, we looked at that passage from Numbers, that brings discouragement, book of Numbers says, which leads to disunity. And so we talked about the importance of being engaged heart to heart together uh, in all that um, the Lord has raised up around here. Well, let me touch on the final two this morning, the final two values. And here's number four. A church that's moving ahead for God is serious about prayer. And I draw this out of verse 17. Uh, this is the two and a half tribes speaking to Moses. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. That's actually a little prayer, isn't it? The last part of verse 17, may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Joshua, that's our prayer for you. Uh, S.D. Gordon, who was uh, a lay pastor a number of years ago, published a little book in 1904 uh, called Quiet Talks on Prayer. And I want to read to you a, a statement that uh, very striking to me in his book. Uh, he highlights the importance of prayer in these words. He says, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And then he makes this statement. Prayer is striking the winning blow at the concealed enemy. Service is gathering up the results of that blow. Service is merely gathering up the results of prayer. Whether it's Awana, whether it's youth group, whether it's X, whatever it is, is when there is prayer and it's effective, it's not because the ministry was that great and the volunteers were superb. It's because we've struck the winning blow through prayer. That's what he says. You, you think about the life of Jesus. What a, a marvelous example of the importance of prayer. You read through the Gospels and there's a total dependence 
of the Lord Jesus on prayer. The the book of Luke particularly highlights Jesus' life of prayer. The other Gospels do too, but particularly the Gospel of Luke. And what you see is a life that is lived uh, in complete dependence on God. You see a life marked by deep communion with God. You see one who uh, lived in sincere submission to the will of God in all things. And you think about, all right, so Jesus prayed all the time. He was the holy, eternal Son of God, came into this world as a human being, never sinned, perfect in thought and word and deed, and he prayed all the time. Now, if you think about that, okay, so what do we gather from that, that being so? What we should gather from that is there is no person so high and so holy There's no person so close to God. There's no person so well-equipped and trained and educated and knowledgeable that that person can dispense with prayer. That you and I can afford to live apart from a life of regular, earnest prayer. And think about this in the congregational sense. There is no congregation that has ever existed or ever will exist that is so well-established so well-resourced, so amply provided with good staff that it can run its programs, carry out its ministry, reach people for Christ, turn back the attacks of the evil one without prayer being at the heart and center of all that's done. Prayer is essential. We discover that from the life of Christ. Uh, For example, it's essential before we make any important decision in life. Uh, You find the example of Jesus picking the 12 apostles. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6 says he spent the whole night in prayer, alone in prayer. Then the next morning, out of prayer, he made his decision and chose the 12. We discover from the life of Jesus that prayer is essential to the filling and power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. How does that happen? Remember, at the baptism of Christ, Luke tells us as Jesus was praying, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. And so if we seek the filling and power of the Holy Spirit, it will come as we pray, as indeed it did for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Prayer is essential to facing times of trial and times of sorrow and times of loss. Again, the example of Christ. Garden of Gethsemane, you know the story. Uh, The cross is the next day. And he's there in the garden, agonizing in prayer, prayed three times, sweat as it were, great drops of blood, Luke tells us. And he said to the disciples, you watch and pray also. What did they do? They slept instead. And when the authorities came into the garden, they panicked. They weren't prepared. They weren't spiritually fortified. They ran. They denied their Savior because they were prayerless. Prayer is essential to facing times of trial and sorrow. Prayer is vital. There's a a famous story uh, that's told about an American couple 150 years ago that was visiting England. They were a Christian couple. And uh, on their tour, when they were in London, one of the places they wanted to see, besides Buckingham Palace and those kinds of things, uh, they wanted to see the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And that's because that was the place where Charles Spurgeon, 150 years ago, was the pastor. 
And in that grand, magnificent Victorian building, thousands would come each week to hear the greatest preacher in the English language in the 19th century. And so the church would be packed every Sunday. Everybody in the English-speaking world knew about Charles Spurgeon. And so they wanted to go to church there on a Sunday, but they wanted to see the building also. And so they arrived at church well over an hour before the service. And so the doors were unlocked. They opened the doors. They walked in. There wasn't really much of anybody around. It's like, maybe we came a little bit too early. What do we do? And as they were standing there for several moments in uh, the lobby of the building, uh, a bearded gentleman came over to them and said, uh, may I help you? And they explained they were from America. They had always heard about the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Wondering, is it possible that we could take a simple tour of this place before people start coming? Certainly before the service starts. We're here plenty early. Could uh, somebody just give us a brief tour of the building? And uh, he said, well, you know what? He said, I'm a member of this church. Uh, Be glad to give you a tour. And so he said, the first place that I want to show you is the furnace room. And they're looking at him like, the furnace room? That didn't sound real exciting, but they were guests, and uh, their guide seemed to be so earnest about it, so they, all right, yes, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll start there on the tour. And so they went down, went down these winding stairs in this grand Victorian building down to the basement, and then when they got down to the basement, uh, went to a sub-basement, and they came to a huge oak door that had uh, those old-fashioned iron hinges on the door and then an iron handle. And so the man opened the door to the room, and there it's like boilers, furnaces, there in that room. Oh, and several hundred people on their knees praying. And the couple was amazed at what he saw down in this sub-basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And the tour guide said, you know, I wanted you to see this place first. Because he said, well, I'm a member of this church. I'm also the pastor. Hi, I'm Charles Spurgeon. And he said, people come from all over the world to see what God is doing in this place. And many think, he said, I'm the reason for why it's happening. He said, it isn't so. He said, every morning, every Sunday from 10 o'clock until noon, hundreds of people gather here in this room to pray for two hours. They pray for the service. They pray for my ministry. They pray for conversions. They pray for people's hearts to be changed, to be fully committed to Christ. And he said, I wanted to start here because this room explains why God is doing what he's doing here at Metropolitan Tabernacle. When I was in Minot at Our Redeemers, we had that kind of ministry. Not that large, but the same kind of ministry. It started out with a couple who was absolutely passionate about prayer. I mean, they were interested in the other ministries of the church, but prayer, a burden for prayer, and that we be a praying church was number one. And so to make a long story short, got a prayer team together and uh, coordinated it in such a way that uh, we had two services on a Sunday. Early service, Sunday school, later service. And so the prayer team was split into two. And so half of the prayer team would attend the early service, go to Sunday school, 
and then pray for an hour during the second service in the prayer room, just off the sanctuary. And the other prayer team would do it, of course, just the opposite. And as they were in the prayer room, they would have the door open because they could then easily hear the service. And they had with them their bulletin. And so as the service would go on, uh, like let's say we were uh, singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Okay, as the congregation started singing, they'd be praying, Lord, there are people here who think that they're going to slip away. They're, they're concerned about where they're headed in life. Lord, hold on to them. Help them to know that you're not going to let them go. They prayed through every song, every scripture reading, everything in the service in order while the service was going on. It was an amazing sort of thing. And not only that, but every Saturday night, the prayer team would gather for prayer. If you've been in Our Redeemers, you know it seats 600. And uh, there are four sections of pews in sort of a, a, a semicircle. And so the prayer team would divide up, and each one, a group of prayer team folks, would take a section of pews. And they'd start in the front row, and they'd kneel by the front row. Now, at our Redeemer's, people actually sat in the front row. So, um, so, so what you do is uh, you'd start by praying, and, and you'd pray for the people who would be sitting in that row come the next morning. And since everybody in every church has assigned seats, you know where people sit. And so when you were going along, you could say, you know, so-and-so, they're going to be sitting here, Lord willing, tomorrow. Lord, I know they're struggling with, or I know somebody in their family is sick, or Lord, just pour your blessing, open their hearts. And so they'd pray through the entire rows of the sanctuary. They would go to the sound booth and pray in the sound booth for all those helping with the technical part of the service. They would walk up to the pulpit, lay their hands on the pulpit, and pray for me. They would go by the instruments on the platform, and they would pray for all the musicians. What was really um, very uh, stirring to me, on the first Sunday, where we finally got all this organized, what the team members said to me is, we're going to be praying for you even during the service we attend, especially when the word is being preached, just so you know. And so that very first Sunday, they said, when you get up to preach, look for us because we're going to give you a signal. And so when I got up and they said, don't just, read, don't just announce the text and start reading it. Look around before you read it. And so on that first Sunday morning, as I announced the text, one here, one here, one here, they had their thumb up like this right in front of them. That, I, I knew they were going to do that. They said, that's what we're going to do. And they said, "By when we do that, that's going to be like, we're praying for you. Preach the word. Go for it. That was awesome. When we got that prayer team going, some of you know old Pastor Hamp Cavalli. He preached one Sunday. He said, I've never felt freedom like this before in this place. Every Sunday, I do what, I, what we do here, come for prayer. I can't remember hardly a Sunday people didn't come to the front for prayer. We didn't have kneelers. They knelt on the steps. I'd kneel with folks at the front virtually every Sunday for prayer. I'd lead people to, the, to Christ sitting in the second row at the end of the service. God moved in an amazing way. Through prayer. I can remember we had a significant remodeling project. We needed to do some remodeling and some expansion. And so the project was well over a million dollars. And uh, so before we ever uh, brought this to the congregation, you know how these things go. You present it, and then before the meeting, like, dear Lord, help us to make a wise decision. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody makes a motion. Okay, we didn't do that. Um, we set aside an entire week for prayer and fasting. And our prayer team organized this, and um, we had a sign-up sheet in the prayer room so people or a couple could sign up for every hour of the day, even from 2 to 3 in the morning. 
And so for a week, we had prayer sign-ups, and I put together a list of various scriptures to read. I printed them out, and then I had some questions for thought and prayer and meditation. And so round the clock for an entire week of prayer and fasting, then we brought it to the congregation. And uh, so we brought the, to the congregation, brought the proposal, it was over a million dollars, and the vote was affirmative. All right, we need to raise the million plus dollars. And so over the next weeks then, we urged people to either by way of gift or pledge, and, and they knew what the number was, and we're going to have a Sunday where we let everybody know what the amount is. So the Sunday came, and I had, um, I had pieces of paper like tag board, and I had numbers written on the back of, you know, the, the amount that we got. So he started on this end, and that was the number of cents. So somebody might hold up the three card, then the next one turned over two, then the decimal point, then the, you know, the single dollar amount, then the ten place, whatever. And I had the commas in there. And so all across the front, they'd flip one by one by one. You got into six figures, and there were two more cards left. There was a comma, and the question was, what's the next card going to be? Is it going to be a zero? Or what is it? And it was one. It was one million. I forget the exact amount. In cash and pledges, it was all there, and we started the project. I can tell you about prayer. The first church I pastored, my elders and I gathered every week for an hour of prayer. And I can remember the first year, uh, we, I said, let's pray for five new families. And, okay, so we're going to pray for five new families. So we'd start counting. So, you know, the, the next week's like, well, there was one in church. And then, you know, several weeks later, okay, now we're at two. We got to eight. And then next year I said, well, let's again pray for five new families. And the elders said, where is your faith? We prayed for five. The Lord gave us more. Why aren't you challenging us to pray for ten? Um, and so I said, uh, Okay, well, we'll pray for 10 new families. Um, but I've seen the Lord do some awesome things through prayer. And, and what I'm thankful for here is we've got a little group that meets on Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour. And I wish there were a lot more of you that would join them. If prayer really is to be a priority, if you're not in another class, you need to be there. Will God do great and awesome things through prayer if we will but pray? I have seen it happen in ministry, the places I've been. I didn't read it in a book somewhere. I've seen it happen. And so I challenge you to be part of earnest intercessory prayer. If that would mark our church, we would see some amazing things unfold here that we haven't seen before. I throw that out as a challenge. There might be some of you who will take on that challenge and see how God might direct us in that way. A church that's serious about prayer. And then the final one here, a church that's serious about taking risks. And I don't know if that's the best word to use because if God calls you to something, it looks like a risk from our standpoint, but it really isn't. But, but for want of a better word, that's the one I've, I've chosen. Uh, notice the last five words of verse 18. It says, only be strong and courageous. That's the people of the two and a half tribes talking to Joshua. 
And uh, they're reminding Joshua of the words that the Lord uh, had spoken to him earlier in the chapter. And you think about only be strong and courageous. What do those words imply? Those words imply that what's in front of us is a huge undertaking beyond our ability, is what they're in essence saying to Joshua. There is risk involved. Um, the Jordan River is at flood stage, we'll discover in chapter 3. But let's take God at his word. Let's trust that he'll bring us across what seems like a risk. Let's trust the leading of the Lord and step out. Uh, there was an interesting book I came across many years ago. The book's over 50 years old now. Uh, published back in uh, 1973 by uh, Wes Zeliger. And uh, it's an interesting book simply entitled Western Theology. Um, and in that book, he talks about the church. And he compares what he calls settler theology to pioneer theology. And here's what he writes. He says, in settler theology, the church is like a big courthouse in the downtown square. The building is surrounded by signs that read, keep off the grass. And then he goes on to say in this line of thinking, the courthouse is the settler's symbol of law, order, tradition, stability, and most important, security. There are churches that embrace settler theology. Then he says there's pioneer theology. He says in pioneer theology, the church is a caravan of covered wagons. They aren't necessarily comfortable, pretty, or safe. They're always on the move. It's bumpy and even hostile at times, but all of the wagons are moving forward together. The pioneers gladly trade safety for obedience to the, ins to the insistent voice of the trail boss, capital letters. In that same section, he talks about motorcycles. He loved motorcycles. And so he tells about one day uh, going into um, a motorcycle shop, sold a lot of different bikes, and uh, he was uh, looking at a Honda 750, he said, and wishing he could buy, just kind of daydreaming, boy, wouldn't it be great to have a Honda 750? And uh, the salesman came over to him, seeing that he seemed to be interested in this bike, and, of course, wanted to make a sale, began to talk to him about the bike. And he talked about, boy, this bike, talk about the speed you can get on this thing, he said. And there is great acceleration on this bike. Um, there is When you ride this thing, it is exciting, he said to Wes. You can race this bike, and yes, there's a little bit of risk with it. But uh, it's an amazing bike, and uh, boy, you've got that attention-getting growl of the pipes. And, uh, you know, as an added bonus, by the way, he said, uh, all the girls are going to be attracted to somebody riding a bike like this. Then he discovered Wes was a clergyman. And uh, Wes says, immediately his tone, his language totally changed. He said, you know, this bike really gets good mileage, he said. And, you know, because of the size of it, it has great visibility. That's something you'd probably want, wouldn't you? And, you know, this Honda 750, when you get down to it, it really is a wonderfully practical vehicle, he said to Wes. And Wes commented on that conversation, and he said, uh, lawnmower salespeople are not surprised to find pastors looking at lawnmowers. 
But he says motorcycle salespeople are surprised to see pastors looking at motorcycles. And he says, why is that? He's trying to make a point. And he says, uh, does that tell us something about churches and pastors? He says, think about a lawnmower. A lawnmower is sane, it's safe, it's practical, doesn't cost a lot of money. Um, and if you, like me, have a push lawnmower, which I do, uh, you don't go all that fast. You know, you get the thing started up, and you walk along behind, and, you know, you mow your lawn. Uh, motorcycles aren't like that, at least the good ones. And uh, they are fast, they're thrilling, they're exciting, they accelerate, uh, they make a lot of noise. I mean, all that part of the excitement and the thrill, and there's a little tinge of danger to them, I suppose, and West asks this question in his book. He says, is being a Christian more like mowing a lawn or riding a motorcycle? And what he asked is, is the Christian life safe and sound and predictable? And I thought about that for mowing the lawn. Okay, I've lived in this parsonage now, what, 15 years? Okay, I know every inch of this lawn, I know where you have to be careful where there's a bump and where the grass is supposed to be or whatever it is. And so when it's in the spring, when it's in the summer, when it's in the fall, I take my little lawnmower and I start up and I go over the same patch of grass I've gone over for 15 years. I mean, it is so predictable. And so he asked the question, is that what the Christian life is like? Or what is it like? And he says, and what about the church? He writes this, he says, the common image of the church is pure lawnmower. Slow, deliberate, and plotting. And he said, but should not the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be more like the motorbike on the open road? Think about that. Do we embrace settler theology or pioneer theology, to use his other analogy? So you think about it. So the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church on the day of Pentecost. And I can tell you as a church historian, over the centuries, whenever the church has had a great impact on society, it's because it's traded in the lawnmower for a Honda 750. When there's been times of revival and awakening, when there's been times where the church has made a significant impact on life and society, that has been the case, where we're leaving the courthouse in the town square behind, let's get the covered wagons together and let's head further west. A church that's serious about taking risks. Let me close with, with this. Uh, Dr. David Larson, uh, who for a number of years was pastor at First Covenant Church in uh, Minneapolis, and then later became uh, chair of the Department of Practical Theology at uh, Trinity a seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, Chicagoland. Um, he wrote a book entitled Caring for the Flock, and I draw this uh, statement of his out of chapter 2, where he talks about uh, the mission of the church. And he writes these words. He says, the words missile and mission come from the same root, having to do with being sent. We moderns have become very conscious of missiles, but obviously the church, by and large, is not clear on its mission. Some congregations have become unbearable activity traps, while others are suffocating in an oppressive malaise of passivity and purposelessness. 
The basic purpose of the church is perhaps outlined in the Constitution or bylaws of the congregation or on the back of our bulletin, but it has become a meaningless motto. The widespread uncertainty of the church as to its role is seen in any typical community. On one corner is the church of what's going on now. Across the street is the church of the immaculate perception. Down the block, for those with more new age tendencies, is the mystic church of cosmic vibrations. Within a short distance, one can also find, for those to the left, the first church of Christ socialist. And perhaps the most popular of all is the church of the inner spring, a refuge for many on a typical Sunday morning. By the grace of God, may we be persons, may we be a congregation in the pursuit of holiness, serious about the matter of obedience, that there be a spirit of unity that marks us, that we give ourselves to earnest and persistent prayer, and then that there be a willing to take spirit-directed, spirit-inspired, I'll put risks in quotation marks, for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, so what kind of folks are we, each of us individually? Uh, What kind of a congregation are we? What are you calling us to be? That's another question. And uh, so, Lord, uh, may uh, you stir each one of us that, why are we here? Do we just exist to exist? Or is there a mission that isn't just printed on the back of the worship folder, but a mission that has penetrated our hearts, a mission that we are deeply concerned about and engaged in with our different gifts and abilities and opportunities that you lay before us. And so, Lord, uh, in these days to come, may we be a church that makes a difference. Uh, May we be a church that is bright and shining in this community, not for our sake, but that others might see Jesus Christ, your Son. And so, Lord, equip us for every good work, knowing that you work in us all that's well-pleasing in your sight. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.